this last week, in a, in a desperate plea for attention, another pop star, another pop celebrity came out as non-binary and asked her fans to use non-gendered plural pronouns to refer to her. And then another famous Christian musician decided to identify as exvangelical. In other words, he denied the faith and is now officially apostate. And the world applauds people like this for standing up and declaring, quote, your truth. Actually, that, that Christian musician um, who has now rejected the faith is Kevin Max from DC Talk. And he arrogantly claims to be a follower of what he calls the universal Christ, which as far as I can tell is a Christ of his own imagination. It's a Christ whose message is just simply love, or at least love everyone except actual evangelical Christians for whom it is okay to hate and mock, which is how this typically goes. His is a Christ that is devoid of justice. Devoid of wrath for sin, devoid of law and gospel, devoid of standards of morality and immorality, and devoid of objective truth. Our world trades in lies and half-truths. Lies are wrapped in other lies and they're appropriated as individual truths. Your truth. But this is insanity. And it's not sustainable. We are bombarded with lies every day. We carry a device in our pockets that has 24-7 access to lies and deception. We scroll through lies and and half-truths every single day and we don't even give it a thought. We're so connected to mass media that we can't even get gas without having to watch some sort of advertisement on a gas pump mounted TV screen with terrible speakers, always. We're constantly inundated with lies from without and lies from within. See, not only is the world working at finding new ways to lie to us, we're also constantly lying to ourselves. We're believing lies. I will be cool if I buy that thing. I will be accepted if I begin to act like the opposite sex. The Westminster Larger Catechism, which was written by, uh, mostly by our, our Presbyterian brothers in Christ a few hundred years ago, to instruct, the larger is to instruct the adults of the church in the scriptures. And so it's a good instructing document, even if we disagree on a few points. And it says this about the ninth of the Ten Commandments. Listen carefully to this. It's question 143. Which is the ninth commandment? Answer, The ninth commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. 144, the next question. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? Answer, this is a little bit long, but this is really good. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth. 
And from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. When the saints assemble every Lord's Day, there are certain things that we need. We need things that are true. The world has been lying to us all week. We need to hear the truth. In fact, Paul will tell the Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And of course, our greatest need is Christ. We need to be reminded of these things from the Scriptures. We need His gospel. We need His good news. We need His assurance that our sins have been removed, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We need to be reminded that 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 9 are true. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to be reminded of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We need the truth that we proclaim at the table. Martin Luther famously once said, if you could see how many knives, darts, and arrows are every moment aimed at you, you would be glad to come to the sacrament as often as possible. John Calvin combated the, the practice of a once-a-year Lord's Supper when he wrote this in his Institutes. He said, the table of the Lord ought to be spread out in the sacred assembly at least once a week. No one should be compelled, but all should be exhorted and stimulated. The slothfulness of those who keep away should also be reproved. Hence, it was not without cause I complained at the outset that it was the wile of the devil which intruded the custom of prescribing one day in the year, leaving it unused all the rest. We need the truth we proclaim when we come to the table, we need the truth that his body and his blood were given so that we might live in a new covenant relationship with our God and Savior. We need truth. We need grace and peace. The world gives us death and destruction, 
But as we say every single week when we gather to worship, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention to the the sign over the doors on the way into the sanctuary. Not the one on the way out, it just says exit. The one on the way in. The sign that says those words, grace and peace. Incidentally, two side notes. First, Alex made that sign out of a floor joist from the old church building. So it has sentimental and symbolic significance. The message of grace and peace has been a message long proclaimed by the church. Additionally, I think it's entirely appropriate to call this room a sanctuary as opposed to a worship auditorium or something. Because at least for a few hours every Lord's Day, this is exactly what it is. It's the place where God's people assemble to meet God together and to be reminded that they are safe and set apart, that they are sanctified for His glory, that they are a people for His own possession, to be reminded that the message of Jesus Christ to you today is grace and peace. So as we have for the last couple of weeks, let's read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul's introduction as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Remind us of your grace and your peace, not just of the words, not just of the words that we can so easily um, skip over when we read one one of the epistles, but of the truth that you have poured out your grace on us, that you have reconciled us to yourself in peace. Remind us of this truth today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to plagiarize myself for just a moment. Um, I said this just a couple of months ago when we preached through Titus. Paul, in fact, in most of his letters, begins the same way with this greeting of grace and peace. and It's almost identical in Titus, so some of this you've heard before. But if I didn't say that, you wouldn't know, so it's okay. In nearly every letter of Paul to his churches... Peter does it, Jude does it, John does it in his second letter, 2 John. The first thing that they mention beyond the address, so the first two verses here, Paul to Corinth, 
beyond the address. They, they greet what is called an apostolic greeting, a greeting of the apostles. And on one hand, verse 3 here is, is so simple that we sometimes read right through it to get to the meat of the letter. But these statements are of vital importance. If you remember nothing else today, remember this true blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet on the other hand, this is not simple at all, is it? This is the effect of God's grace toward us. This promise, this true blessing continues to be true. This continues week after week to remind us of the fact that our blessedness and our joy lie in the truth that we have been reconciled to God and that he keeps us in his favor. He has reconciled us to himself. He has, he has withheld his wrath from us and instead given us peace. So think of those two words, grace and peace, or favor and reconciliation. This statement of verse 3 is a, a greeting that we should long for every time we approach our God in worship. We should walk in here after being lied to all week long by the world, being lied to by our own sin, by our flesh, and we should sit there and we should long to hear grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell me something I can know. Tell me something that is true. Tell me something that I know that I can believe. Tell me something that will bring me to repentance. Tell me something that will assure me that God has pardoned my sins. Tell me something that will remind me to rejoice. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's faithful, loving kindness and goodness toward us. And this grace is no small thing. This grace is God's unmerited, unearned love and favor. He has taken pity on us. We are not worthy of our Creator's love. We were conceived in sin. We deserve God's justice, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This grace is the, is the merciful kindness by which God, in power and authority, turns souls to Christ and keeps them and strengthens them, and increases our faith, our knowledge, and our godliness. And it is this grace that enables us to persevere each day and each week to the end. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, reconciliation, God's wrath has been removed from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Remember that, that Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, he, in verse 1, he tells us that he has been called by God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And an apostle is one who has been sent. In fact, a, a messenger. He's a, he's a messenger who has been sent. And, he, and he's carrying a, a message of good news, a message of gospel. 
And he is a messenger of the Prince of Peace. He has been sent by the Prince of Peace, and therefore that messenger must bring a message of peace. He must be a minister of peace. This is the blessing of the gospel. Grace is the favor of God, and and peace is the fruit of the work of Christ. It's the opposite of condemnation. Grace, and we're going to pick up on this thread all the way through verse 9, Grace is, is all that we have received because of the love of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, also of 1 John, John says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Peace is the benefit that flows from God's love and his grace. The prophet Isaiah, and it's interesting that we were here in Nahum as well this morning in Sunday school, Ben quoted this passage, but Isaiah says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Grace is one of the most loved of all Christian words, isn't it? This week at Fire Fellowship, as we gathered together with, um, I don't know, 150 or so other people in several churches that were there, we were listening to the church reports as they give up, get up and just share a couple of things that have happened over the year and ask for prayer and a, a few things. One of the things that stood out to me, beyond what I shared earlier, was that So many of the churches that got up and shared, the name of their church was Grace something. Grace in the name of of the church. Such an important concept to us. And embedded in this concept of grace is the idea that, that God, a good God, gives good gifts to his people. In fact, the same word for grace, the same Greek word, is used in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 3. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, to refer to a financial gift, the word is translated gift, it's money is what he's talking about, it's offerings that the church would be sending to other believers, other churches who are struggling. And, and by the way, this is why God loves a cheerful giver, because of the gift of grace that he has given you, us. This is why giving is an act of worship. That's why we do it as part of the worship. In fact, I don't, think, I don't think we should worship online, even giving. It's an act of worship because God has poured out his grace on us. And so to make a kind of a correlation here, sort of a negative correlation, if you will, just as the sin of adultery is associated throughout the scriptures with idolatry, so also cheerful giving of money is associated with God's cheerful gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And to explain all of these things, Paul expresses his thankfulness to God. He is thankful for the Corinthian church. And we see here that that Paul is thankful first for their conversion of faith, verse 4, 
and then also for the spiritual gifts of grace, really verses 5 through 7. So let's look at the conversion of faith in verse 4. Let me read verse 4 again. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul is thankful for the church at Corinth, and he expresses his thankfulness, how? By praying for them. That's how he expresses his thank. Yes, he's telling them in the letter, but he's thankful for them. He is praying for them. I've often heard um, in various settings how thankful you are, either for the church as a whole or for individual members of this church. And I would challenge you that if you don't already do this, and I know that many of you do, but if you don't already do this, turn that thankfulness into prayer for one another. Be sure to do that. And start off as Paul does, by thanking God for their conversion to Christ. When you are thankful for the people in the church, when you're thankful for the church, thank God that he saved them. But there's a word in this verse that we need, to, we need to be sure not to skip over. And that word is always. I give thanks to my God always, he says. Paul has this continuing, constant, long-standing concern and care for Christ's church. And I just want you to compare this verse, verse uh, 4 here. I want you to compare this verse with what we heard a couple of weeks ago in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. Let me, let me read this, Acts 9, 1 and 2 for you, and, and notice the heart and attitude change in Paul or Saul. Acts 9, 1 and 2 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, church members, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul, Paul, has been radically transformed here, hasn't he? Instead of breathing threats and murder, he's praying without ceasing. He's breathing prayers of thankfulness for the Christians, for the church at Corinth. But not just for the Corinthians. He tells the Philippians that he always prays for them with joy. He tells the Colossians, in fact, he says this to the church at Coloss. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Imagine if we, all just, if we just always prayed those words for one another that we may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Or imagine if we prayed for one another as he prays for the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are some rich prayers. And, and they're so simple, aren't they? A couple of sentences. Imagine if we prayed those prayers for one another here. 
I believe God answers prayer. I believe that he would answer those prayers. Pray those things for one another. I think it will transform our church even more. Well, Paul is thankful that God has poured out his his divine blessing in Christ Jesus on them. And he's just beginning to remind them here that God is the source of their blessing, of their blessedness. They did not earn God's favor. He will say this more explicitly later in the letter, but for now, he is simply directing his thankfulness toward God, toward the giver of all good gifts. Now think about gifts, whether it's Christmas, think especially of Christmas, and the reason for Christmas, and the gifts, the reason for the gifts at Christmas. Nine times in these nine verses, Christ is spoken of by name. Either he says Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ nine times. And once I think he just uses the title Christ. That's not to mention the pronouns that refer to him. And look at the gifts that God has given through Jesus. This is all about Jesus, the good and perfect, the best and perfect gift. Look at the gifts that God has given through Jesus. In verse 4, we read that he he has given grace Verse 5, we are enriched in him. Verse 6, we read of of confirmation. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 8 tells us that we are sustained, guiltless in Christ. And verse 9, he circles back to God's calling us in Christ. The point is this. The gift of grace comes only to those who are in Christ Jesus. Only to those who are united to him by faith. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But this blessing, this gift of grace, this gift of salvation, it it has another gift wrapped inside of it. Or we could even say that there is an abundance of spiritual gifts for us. These are the gifts of grace. Look at verse 5. I'll read 5, 6, and 7. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, spiritual gifts or gifts of grace are what the Corinthians are known for or rather, Paul's instruction about them, really in chapters 12 and 14, or really 12, 13, and 14, about spiritual gifts when he addresses them specifically. They're really what this letter is known for, or one of the things that we know 1 Corinthians for. And it says right here in verse 7 that they, the Corinthians, are not lacking in any spiritual gift. And yet, this is the same for any church. Any gathering of God's people. The purpose of God's good and gracious gifts is for the building up of the congregation. For the building up of the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul will write to them in chapter 14 as he addresses them more specifically. Verse 26, he says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. For building up the body of Christ. He'll tell the Ephesians uh, almost the same thing in in chapter 4, verse 7. 
Ephesians 4, 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then at the end of that section, verses 15 and 16, he continues and says this, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The gifts of grace are for the building up of the church, and and this enriches us in Christ. In fact, these good spiritual gifts that, that God gives us are displays of his immeasurable riches of his grace toward us. And remember, uh, I'll point this out here. We will get into this more later in the, in the book. But this isn't some sort of second blessing. This isn't something that happens, as some would have us believe, for example, only after you speak in tongues when you receive the Holy Spirit. That's not how any of that works. Every believer who has trusted in Christ receives the Holy Spirit at the moment they're saved, the moment they put their trust in Him, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your confession. It's the guarantee of your salvation until we acquire possession of it, until we see Him in glory. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is God pouring out His grace on all who believe. Consider Ephesians chapter 2. These verses are familiar, but listen to this again in this light. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And in these verses here in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul singles out two spiritual gifts specifically, speech and knowledge. He will address these later, as I said, in chapters 12 and 14. Specifically, he will address them. But he brings them up now to stress that they they were especially prominent at Corinth. And for this, Paul is thankful to the giver of good gifts. So what are these, speech and knowledge, speaking in this way? Well, in order to understand this, one of the things that we should keep in mind is the the concept of the Greek philosopher, guys like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. See, persuasion, logic, and rhetoric were important to Greeks. They enjoyed debate. They enjoyed the exchange of ideas. And Paul is thankful that the Christians of Corinth were especially gifted by God both in, in both speaking, so articulating the truths of the Bible, and in knowledge, in understanding those truths. They could share the reason for the hope that is within them. They understood the reason for the hope that was within them. And these gifts were given that the church might grow, that the testimony of God's grace would be proclaimed, that the message of the gospel would be discussed, defended, preached as truth. Later, Paul will point out that the Corinthians were far too worldly, and they were using their good gifts for their own selfish benefit often, 
But for now, he is just simply grateful to God that he has poured out the riches of his grace on them. Because as verse 6 says, these gifts were testimony of God's Spirit working among them. Confirmation that Christ is working to sanctify them, to make them holy, to transform them to Christ-likeness. They were, in fact, sanctified saints who were not lacking in any of God's good gifts. The church at Corinth has everything that she needs because she has the riches of Christ's grace, and therefore she is able to live with eager expectation of his return. This is the longing of every Christian. This should be the longing of every Christian, that we eagerly await Christ's return. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 says it like this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. And while we wait, we have everything we need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that while we wait for Christ's return, we have everything we need? Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is sustaining and he is faithful. The content of God's um, grace for which Paul is giving thanks is that the Corinthians have been called by God's grace. They have been given great riches of his grace and that in Christ, God will ensure that they are found not guilty on the day of the Lord, that great final day of judgment. Even more than just not guilty, they will actually be innocent because we'll be clothed in his, we are clothed in His righteousness, His innocence. And this, verse 8 here, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the power and love of Christ. He who had began this good work in them will be faithful to complete it. He will not leave the work of grace unfinished. One author said this, When we remember on one hand how great is our guilt, and on the other hand how great is our danger from without and from within, we feel that nothing but the righteous work of Christ and the power of God can secure our being preserved and presented blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here is that Paul is giving them an assurance of pardon He is telling them, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he's going to keep you safe. He's going to keep you that way. Paul is giving them this before he's going to write some difficult corrections to them as the chapter, as the the book progresses. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to admonish them. He's going to tell them that they're doing a lot of things wrong and they're not loving one another in the way that Christ has loved them. 
Yet even though, even though the church at Corinth was a, a mess, literally, immorality is rampant in this church. Some are getting drunk on the communion wine, while others are going without. Like, not just that they don't have the bread in the cup, they don't have, they don't have lunch. Others don't have anything, they're going hungry. Some people were suing each other in the church. On and on and on. The church was a mess. And even though the church was a mess, their sins are forgiven. He's telling him that at the beginning. The same is true for you. If you've been called, justified, saved, if you're a child of God, you're a sanctified saint. If the, if the grace of God has been poured out on you, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's people are chosen by him. They're called by him. They're justified by him. They're brought into fellowship with him, a deep and abiding friendship with his Son by God himself. Listen to the promise. I'll finish with this. promise of Isaiah 49 Verses 7 through 16 says this. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to, uh, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water. He will guide them. And I will make my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God has engraved us on the palms of his hands. He will not forget us. He has poured out his grace on us. Our God is faithful. The God who called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me. Oh God, you are faithful. Remind us of this today. As we come to the table to eat and drink, Lord, remind us that, that this is a demonstration of your faithfulness. 
that you have promised to redeem for yourself a people for your own possession, a a people who would be a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, those who would be set apart for you. Father, you sent Jesus, you sent your Son to bear the wrath of God, to drink of the cup of the fury of the wrath of God, to go to the cross, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ, that he might give to us his righteousness. Father, we come to the table today to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. We long for the day when Christ returns and we pray that between now and then we would remember that you have promised to sustain us guiltless until the day of Christ because Christ took upon himself our guilt that we might be innocent and righteous before you. And so, Father, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.